Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Orbital Perspective. I hope this episode finds everybody healthy and happy and navigating 
this new reality that we're living in uh, since since the pandemic. Um, we got a, a really exciting conversation that we're about to have. And uh, as it said in the opening, this is not just a conversation between two people. It's a conversation amongst all of us. So be a part of this conversation. Join in with your comments uh, and questions and, uh, and, and be a part of it. You know, this has been, you know, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of all the lockdowns and, and in the U.S. Uh, obviously, we passed it uh, in other parts of the world. And, you know, it's been a it's been a really, really tough year. There's been a lot of people that have uh, suffered greatly uh, during this year. And everyone, it, literally every single person on the planet has been affected in one way or another by COVID-19. Uh, but I want everybody to th Think about a, a scenario. Imagine if you have gone had gone through this past year with no phone, uh, no Wi-Fi, no internet connection, uh, and that unfortunately is the reality for for a couple of billion people on this planet. Not only would you be completely isolated from everybody outside of your immediate household, but you'd also be cut off from critical and potentially life-saving information. And so. Uh, it is uh, a critical uh, reality that we have a whole bunch of people on this planet that uh, are not connected to the global conversation, uh, are not uh, participating in the global conversation. And so my guest today is somebody who's going to change all that. Uh, and uh, my guest today, Dr. Sarah Spangolo, is... Uh, is heading up a, a, an effort to do that. And, and we have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to jump right in and in, introduce Sarah. Dr. Sarah Spangello is the CEO and co-founder of Swarm Technologies. Sarah started Swarm with her co-founder, Ben Longmire, to solve the global problem that device connectivity remains inaccessible in much of the world. Nearly 90% of the Earth's surface does not have cell or Wi-Fi connectivity, and it is expected that 75 billion Internet of Things devices will come online by 2025, many in areas without cell or Wi-Fi infrastructure, leaving only satellite connectivity, which is often prohibitively expensive. Swarm is disrupting the satellite communications industry with affordable, easy-to-use products by harnessing the power of small satellite connectivity. Swarm has focused on meeting the enormous and growing demands for a low-cost IoT network with 100% continuous worldwide coverage and is the first low-cost satellite provider to offer commercial services to every point in the world. Before launching Swarm, Sarah worked on small satellites and autonomous aircraft at the University of Michigan and was a lead systems engineer at both NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab and Google X. She holds a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering from the University of Michigan and was a finalist in the 2017 Canadian astronaut selection. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ron. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the episode. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for the introduction. You bet. And, and so you're coming to us from the Bay Area, right? Yep. Yep. Um, in the Bay Area, quarantining at home. <laughs> um, so... Like we said, you know, this is not an interview, but I, I you know, for the folks out there that may, maybe haven't met you, don't, don't know your story, um, which is an, an amazing story. Can you share a, a little of your story with everybody so um, we can see your journey? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in Canada in a very 
a cold place called Winnipeg um, and did my undergrad there um, at the University of Manitoba, uh, which is where my parents and grandpa also went to get their engineering degrees. So very in the family there. Um, and then after undergrad, decided I wanted to dive deeper into research and applied for some um, opportunities in grad schools across the US and Canada. Um, ended up getting an opportunity to go to the University of Michigan um, and studied aerospace engineering there, did my master's and PhD. Um, during that time, got to work on small satellites, so CubeSat missions, satellites that are about the size of a shoebox. And we actually flew some of the first NSF science funded CubeSats. And that was a pretty fun thing to be a part of. This was around 2010, so about 10 years ago. Um, and since that time, obviously, small satellites have proved that they can do science, they can have a variety of commercial applications, imaging, communications, things like that. Um, so yeah, it kind of grew up with, with the CubeSat form factor and, and kind of bringing it into use for commercial and research applications. Um, and then, oh, sorry, we're gonna go, say something. Go okay. for it, go for it. Um, and then after that, I, I was lucky enough to land my dream job at the time at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, obviously, we just saw the Perseverance landing, uh, I think it was about a week ago, and mm -hmm. I had many friends and colleagues that worked on that. So that was a huge moment for um, all JPLers, <laughs> current and previous in my mind. And I think just uh, a really refreshing uh, thing that happened this year. I think we all kind of needed something like that, exactly. where humanity like had a big step forward. So yep. that was awesome to see. Um, so I was there for about three years, and I worked on small missions and big missions. I was a lead systems engineer. so often leading a bunch of engineers and working with scientists to bring proposals um, to reality. Um, it was an amazing experience, kind of learned the NASA approach and JPL is a, a truly wonderful place. Um, and then after that, I um, ended up coming to the Bay Area working at Google X and I worked on Project Wing, Wing which is an autonomous drone delivery um, program. Uh, so very cool technology. Um, I'm a pilot, so I guess they let me in the door because I had that uh, aircraft versus aerospace background. Um, and while I was there, also worked on a secretive satellite project um, and was there for a full year. And then around the, the end of that year, started working on Swarm. Um, and that was kind of late 2016, early 2017. And that's really when we started Swarm. Um, we saw an opportunity um, and a need to solve for connectivity at kind of the lower end of things. Um, and we came up with a small satellite design and um, pitched that and did the funding thing. And I've been doing that for the last four years. So uh, that's kind of my my story in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a great story. Um, and I think you're leading uh, so, some additional big step forwards. Um, so so why connectivity? What what is What is so important about you know, connecting everybody to the internet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fundamental to um, basic things like education, um, clean uh, water and air, efficient supply chains, um, and and frankly, you know, access to do things like finance and start businesses um, and just kind of help, you know, uh, make things more equal around the world. And we believe that connectivity is a basic human right um, maybe, you know, things like access to food and, and water should be a little bit higher on the list, but we think that it's pretty close on that list um, just because of the inequalities you have if you don't have access to connectivity. I mean, we wouldn't even be talking. I wouldn't even have been able to study the things that I've studied throughout my life without access to connectivity. Never mind really basic things like access to weather and healthcare and 
um, logistics and planning if you're running, you know, a farm or something like that. So we believe it's super fundamental. Um, and we saw this trend in around 2016 where there was a lot of capital being invested in a lot of projects, mainly focusing on higher speed kind of broadband solutions. So like Starlink, we hear about all the time. Um, and we think that's amazing and wonderful to connect people that can afford those types of solutions. However, there's a lot of assets and people in the world that are outside of those regions that can't afford $100 a month or, or whatever it might be. Um, and being able to bring back just a little bit of really valuable data can still have a really profound impact on people's lives. The example I like to give is if you're out hiking or backpacking without cell and you get lost, if you can send back a 50 byte message, lat long altitude and SOS, you know, I, I fell, I broke my leg, that could literally save your life. Exactly. So um, very small amounts of data can be super impactful. And we see that in the space world, right? A zero or a one coming back from Mars or Europa could tell us whether or not there's water. And right. we see a similar analogy here um, in what we're doing with Swarm. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up a really good point. There's there's tremendous benefit to individuals around the world by uh, connecting to, to the internet. Um, from you know, my my last job, I left NASA in 2013, and my last job at NASA was in NASA's Open Innovation um, mm -hmm. uh, project. And one of the things we were doing is making sure that you know the gov our our part of the government, NASA, was open and transparent and sharing data as as best we can. But we also did these things called the International Space Apps Challenges. Was, mm -hmm. which were hackathons, uh, looking at things like connecting folks to the internet so that they could, um, I just had a pop-up, sorry, so that they could um, know which crops to plant, you know, you know, using uh, space-based imagery to, to, to figure out what, you know, what, how the fields are doing and, and boost agriculture yields and, and all this kind of stuff. So there's a, there's a great benefit to individuals, individual communities, um, you know, impoverished areas, uh, but also there's a great benefit to all of us because in the tagline to this episode, you know, I made the point that when we connect the, I think, I think the number is 2 billion or it's probably more than 2 billion people that do not presently have access to the internet. When we connect those, you know, billions of people to the internet, we're going to find solutions to our shared problems that we never dreamed of coming from places we never heard of. And oh, so right. when you connect those, two billion you know, creative, innovative, problem-solving minds to the global conversation through the internet, you know, we're all going to benefit from that. So it's not just an altruistic thing from rich, from rich nations to poor nations. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's moving us as a species forward. And I think you're doing a tremendous job in, in, in doing just that. Yeah, totally. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And I think it's actually closer to 3 billion now. It seems to be growing with time. Wow. Um, and I also think that there's tremendous advantage in being able to connect um, people, but also devices that are in remote locations so that we can run more efficient supply chains. So for example, if you actually know where a ship is and you can optimize its route because you have better weather data, which is also collected and potentially transmitted via satellite, you can reduce the emissions by up to 20%. So when we think of climate change and emissions and, and just more efficiency across the board, whether it's fuel, water, um, air quality, things like that, we can um, just do a better job. We can also detect fires. You know, we've had profound impacts you know, of fires here in California, throughout the U.S. and in Australia. If we had fire detection systems every few square miles or tens of miles or hundreds of miles, whatever makes sense, we could you know, reduce and, and potentially eliminate those fires within hours or days. 
versus them raging for weeks or months and having such incredible kind of health um, and well-being and uh, environmental and also kind of work impacts on society. So yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunities um, for kind of improving our world um, with better connectivity solutions. Yeah, and you know the, the tagline for this for this podcast and the live stream is from space. It's obvious that everything is changing and that we are in the midst of the great transition, right? And one of those things that's happening right now is the rollout of the Internet of Things, IoT mm -hmm. solutions. And so I know that this technology is going to be an integral part. Uh, in in IoT. And so can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So um, IoT, just in case people don't know, it's totally a buzzword. It basically just means, um, you know, connecting assets or devices. In the 80s and 90s, it was called M2M, machine to machine. Um, and yeah, it, it's exploding. So basically, um, companies and people want to have much better visibility to what's going on in their companies, their industries, their supply chains across agriculture, logistics, maritime, um, environmental monitoring, U.S. government. Um, and they want to bring back small amounts of data. Um, and this is typically like a sensor that could be something as simple as temperature or pressure or position or vibration in some location on Earth. Um, and it's anticipated that we'll have 75 billion IoT devices online by 2025. Um, which is a lot more than the number of people, which is just like kind of a crazy number. Um, and most of those devices can only really provide value if they can be connected back. It's fine to collect data, but if you're not sending it anywhere, it's basically useless, right? Um, so that's really the, the problem that Swarm is trying to solve is providing that kind of connectivity infrastructure piece such that the people deploying IoT devices can have the liberty of deploying them in more remote locations, or maybe on assets that are moving, or they can collect that data more efficiently. So rather than the guy having to go out and monitor the beehive and it requires a helicopter, which is very expensive, it can only be done once a month, every day you can send a ping from the beehive saying it's health and status. Um, so that's just one example where it's like so obvious that a yeah. lower cost connectivity solution can, can help solve for those issues. You know, it's, it's not just the Internet of Things. And our mutual friend, Evan Thomas, likes to likes to call it the Internet of Broken Things <laughs> because it has profound yeah. implications for the developing world, right? If you put a, a hand pump in some really remote area of sub-Saharan Africa yeah. and it doesn't work, um, we need to know about that pretty quickly or the, or the folks who are in charge of, of keeping those things uh, up and running. And, and again, a lot of these things are life and death situations where, you know, a very low-cost a rugged, robust uh, solution to be able to keep track of which hand pumps are working and which are not is is pretty critical. Um, so uh, I'm going to remind everybody. I see you all out there. Thanks for thanks to everybody who's joining. I see people joining from all around the world. Uh, this, this is not just a conversation with Sarah and I. It's a it's a conversation with all of us. Uh, so hey, Owens. He says hi. Uh, so um, please join in the conversation, ask questions, uh, give us your comments. So I want to I shift gears for a second. I want to share a story with you. Um, when I was on the space station on my last mission in 2011, we got a call up that we had a red conjunction. Do you know what a red conjunction is? Um, I'm going to guess it's bad if it's the color red. <laughs> yeah. So a red conjunction basically means that a, a piece of space or an object in space, an object orbiting the Earth, is going to get inside a, a, a keep out area on yep. the space station, yep. right? And and I forget the exact dimensions of it, um, but 
normally if if that happens we have enough time we'll boost we'll change the orbit of the of the ISS we'll boost it or, or and yep. we wouldn't necessarily drop it but we could if we had to uh, basically change the orbit to to avoid as in an avoidance maneuver for whatever reason we didn't have have time to do this and i'm told that the object was a was a spent upper stage um yeah. just a piece of space junk flying around yep. and for whatever reason they caught everybody by surprise. And so all we had the time, time to do was close every hatch on the space station. There were six of us on board at the time with two docked Soyuz spacecraft. And uh, I don't know how many hatches there are, but there are dozens of hatches. And it took us, you know, an hour, you know, probably a couple hours to close all these hatches. And then um, myself and my two Russian crewmates got into one Soyuz spacecraft and the other three members of our crew got into another, their Soyuz spacecraft, closed the hatch and just waited. And we had, we had closed that Soyuz hatch about 15 minutes before the object passed. And it passed at something like 35 kilometers per second closing. And uh, it passed within 300 meters of the space station. So yeah. if that thing would have hit the space station, it would have, it would have destroyed everything. You know, I don't, I don't think we would have, we probably would not have survived. I would guess, you know, you never know. But I mean, the idea of, of closing all those hatches and getting in the Soyuz is if it, something does hit the space station and we have a depressurization, then maybe we can undock and, and come back to earth. So the reason why I told that story is, you know, space junk is a really big problem uh, in orbit around the earth. So how do, how do you uh, answer, you know, folks who say, Hey, we're just all these small satellites or, or projectiles that potentially take out other satellites, take out space spacecraft. It's, it's clobbering up low Earth orbit, and it's it's making it a busy place and, a, and an unusable place. And that at the rate we're at, it's not sustainable. Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, that sounds like a really terrifying story. <laughs> I'm sorry that you went through that. Were you just like kind of bracing for those like 15 minutes? <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, I took a nap because at that point, you know, when you're in space, you got you got to uh, you got to focus Optimize. on the stuff you have control over. And I knew that in 15 minutes, I was either going to be dead or I'm going to have a whole bunch of work to do to undo what we just did for the last couple <laughs> hours. So this is 15 minutes where I better take a nap because it's going to be a long time before I go to bed. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a really practical approach to life. I, I admire that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a real concern and I actually tried to become an astronaut as well. So these are things I've thought about um, and have certainly friends that are on that path. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a big issue. I think that, um, you know, whenever I think about anything, I tend to think about the numbers being an engineer and that's kind of my training. So go to the modeling and look at, okay, what are the real risks and what can we do to mitigate against those risks? Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's a few things to think about. So I think definitely everything that's launched into orbit needs to be tracked effectively so that we know where all the objects are um, so that the issue that you had where it suddenly comes out of nowhere, that shouldn't happen because we should know days and weeks in advance what the probability of any type of collision is so that we can carefully monitor them and do any sort of um, avoidance maneuvers. So tracking, I think, is key. Um, for, on Swarm, we have GPS on our satellites that's very accurate, and we downlink that data all the time. So we always have really or accurate orbit fits. And then we also work with Leo Labs. I don't know if you know Ed Liu. Another, yeah, of course, yeah. another astronaut. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's awesome. Um, he's always been supportive of Swarm. We appreciate that. Um, so his company, uh, Leo Labs, tracks our satellites as well as you know many other uh, satellite constellations. And then the government also tracks satellites. So you have three sources of tracking. So you should always know very accurately where your satellites are. Um, 
size matters a lot. So obviously your situation was very scary because that was a pretty big object hurling towards another very big object. So the probability of part of one object overlapping with part of the other is significantly higher than it would be for our satellites. I have one right here, actually. Yeah, and it must have been a retrograde. I mean, because I don't know if that speed was true. That's what I was told. But that yeah. sounds like retrograde speeds to me. I don't know. Yeah, um, that sounds kind of crazy. Yeah. I wonder what kind of orbit it was in. Um, and maybe it was like kind of in an elliptical, you know, sometimes yeah, yeah. Like speeds. Yeah. Um, yeah, so our satellites are really tiny. So the probability of collision with the ISS at 300 kilometers would be very, very low. Just because it's of the theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I think the last element is maneuverability. So, um, you know, many things up there are maneuverable. Many are not like the, the stage that you mentioned, luckily the ISS is maneuverable. If you guys had it had enough time, you could have changed orbits like you mentioned. So we're now flying uh, propulsion and magnetorker so that we can actually maneuver our satellites. Oh, wow. um, so we can be kind of the responsible citizens of being able to maneuver um, and often it's a coordination of like who should maneuver if there's two objects that both have that capability. And, you know, just like a little puff of cold gas thruster can put a satellite in a totally different orbit and make the probability of collision essentially zero. So you can be very thoughtful about that. So something we take really seriously, I mean, Leo is our playground and there would no, be no swarm without Leo. So it's something that we need to protect and um, take care of. Um, and then we also deorbit our satellites when we're done with them. And that can be as short as two years, typically about four years. Um, there's many satellites up there that are going to be up there for like hundreds of years. And that's um, kind of terrifying. So I think being thoughtful when you plan out your architectures is important as well. So it sounds like you're developing best practice, you know, industry best practices here. Um Yep. Because I know that not everybody's doing all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, so we're, you know, many of the 3U constellations don't have propulsion. Um, and we are kind of concerned about that. We think that, you know, it would probably behoove everyone to have propulsion. And we have it on a satellite that's a, a 12th the size. So we know it's possible. Um, and we think that that's a pretty good step forward. Um there's also kind of, it reminds me a little bit of like, if enough people get the vaccine, COVID-19 will go away. If enough people have propulsion, the kind of risk goes down as long as those satellites remain maneuverable. So as long as we kind of hit that critical threshold, um, sure. and I don't have that modeling at my fingertips, but as long as most people are maneuverable, um, I think we can keep Leo pretty safe. And historically, there haven't been that many collisions. So um, space is big, um, but as more and more objects go up, of course, we need to, you know, continue to monitor um, their profile and, and act accordingly. Yeah. So, so you're the CEO of Swarm, and I want to talk to you about leading a startup. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I have this, I have a really good friend who, who also happens to be one of my all-time heroes, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Mohammed Yunus, who invented microfinance and social business. And basically he has a motto that whenever he saw a problem in the world, he created a business to solve it, right? And so you're kind of following that model. You saw a problem in the world, internet connectivity. You understood the implications uh, of, you know, it's not just that people can't watch Netflix or whatever. It's there's really serious and sometimes life or death um, implications for not having inter uh, internet access. And, and you created a business uh, to solve that problem. So can you talk to us a little bit about the challenges of, of, a of launching a startup, of running a startup, and, and particularly, you know, a, a startup at your stage in the middle of a pandemic? That, that must be, you know, the startup 
phase is so vulnerable to begin with, and then you roll in a pandemic in the middle of it, I, I can't imagine that was uh, helpful. Yeah, totally. Um, so, I mean, being a startup founder, I think um, it's really not that glamorous. <laughs> it's like getting up at 5 a.m. and basically kind of um, dealing with fire after fire most yeah, of the day. It's not like Silicon Valley, the, the TV show? No, it's it's yeah. funny because I do like, you know, these panels and interviews and I get dressed up, they do my makeup and I feel like being like, this is not my life. My life is like <laughs> not showered in my hoodie at 5 a.m., you know. Um, so it's definitely not very glamorous. I think it's, um, it's an opportunity to work on something and lead something and have a lot of control, but also a lot of responsibility, um, over a lot of things. So th I think the, the challenge about being a startup is that you have a lot of people that are coming to you for answers, the investors, the employees, and if you're lucky, the customers, um, and maintaining consistent messaging and comms and, um, kind of a, a sense of control and direction across all three of those areas, um, it can be very, very difficult and very draining because frankly, you're also figuring it out at the same time. <laughs> it's like writing the textbook as someone is asking you to kind of take the test in the textbook exactly. at the same yeah. time. Um, so th the good the good thing about Swarm is that we have an incredible team. We have you know an incredible founding team. We've had about four or five people with us since the very beginning that um, you know, are just like just world-class, just kind of go to them with any problem, any stressor, any, um, you know, existential crisis and we'll work together as a team. And that's incredibly comforting and, and really powerful, especially to get through the challenges of the first few years. Um, now kind of folding in the pandemic, luckily Swarm was about three years along when the pandemic started about a year ago. Um, and, you know, we had a little bit of a heads up because of what was going on on the global scale um, and were able to come up with some plans. There was a lot of support out there with other founders. And, you know, we took actually a lot of kind of cues from Google and Apple and Facebook. They were developing really good policies and we could kind of copy those and know that those were, were, were well th thought out. Um, and our team is already partially remote. So we were able to transition the people that weren't remote to remote relatively quickly um, you know, having all hands more frequently, communicating, being really transparent, um, very transparent with the team. And they appreciate that. Um, just, you know, this is where our burn is at. Uh, these are our hiring plans. These are the changes we're making because of, of COVID. Um, you know, we need to um, not, we need to reduce our spend. We need to make these cuts. How can we get everybody kind of on board? Um, but we were also in a position where we didn't have to lay anyone off and we didn't have to cut salaries, which oh, is awesome. extremely rare in startups. Pretty much all of the other startups, you know, laid off some fraction of their sales or of their force or, or reduced salaries. So, um, and we were also in a position where we had functional satellites in space. We had our regulatory approvals and we had our, our beginning of our business, you know, customers and pilots and stuff. So far less vulnerable than we were in say the first one or two years. Um, yeah. So had that maturity. But it was still really hard. I mean, it was emotionally difficult for a lot of people. Um, I worried a lot about kind of mental health of being isolated, being fearful, not being able to visit family, have support systems. So, and, and you know, I myself even struggled, right? So it's kind of like, we're all in this. It was really challenging. But I think the team adapted. And I think a lot of the team members kind of took care of one another. Like, I, I'm worried about so-and-so. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to you know, try to help them along. Um, and I was really impressed with the transition. 
And a few months in, it was funny. I felt like we were almost like more effective because it was like less distraction in the office and everyone was very focused on their tasks. Um, so yeah, it, it was definitely hard. It remains hard. Um, we also have a very lean team. So we had one guy in the lab building satellites and equipment. He was able to do that through the pandemic. It's kind of a one-man show. Um, and then we were able to fold back in other team members um, when you know the county and CDC said it was appropriate um, using masks and, and all of that. And everyone has um, stayed safe in the workplace. So that's been great. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a testament to having an amazing team and supporting them, um, and finding solutions, which as a startup you're doing every day. So it's just kind of like, bring it on, bring me another challenge. <laughs> so I think the key thing that, that I heard there, um, which is, which is a, a key takeaway, I think, and, and something that everybody can apply is that you guys have been successful through this pandemic because you're a community, because you, you see yourself as a community. Uh, a community that, that that helps each other. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's so many analogies to that. Um, and even in combat, you know, fighting in combat, you know, when when folks are fighting in combat over and over again, and I've had my own experience in combat and I could, I could attest to this, is you're not only fighting for your country, you're fighting for each other, right? The people in your unit. Uh, and there's a really strong uh, feeling of camaraderie there of, of we are all in this together. We have this yep. big, big honk and challenge here and we've got we've got it the only way we're going to get through it is together um you do have a small nimble team but your cha- that small nimble team is cha- is changing the world right i mean you i think you just launched 12 a dozen satellites last weekend uh yep. you have like 29 employees is that right is it we have 29 yeah and we're growing quickly <laughs> if you want to join us <laughs> to check out our careers path or yeah. careers page <laughs> yeah um and uh how many how many total satellites do you have in orbit right now we have 93 total satellites, um, wow. and most of those are commercial offering services right now. And like you mentioned, we launched 12 on Saturday, um, and we launch every month or two. So it's a really exciting time. So I guess a question would be, you know, you've par- partially part of the reason why you've been so successful is because you've established within your company this this feeling of community. How do you keep that community when you scale um, and? You know, now you have hundreds of employees, not 29 employees. Yeah. Well, thank you for be- saying we're successful. I feel like we're <laughs> just starting to come out of the gates, but I like that optimism. Um, you know, it's it's a great well, question. Well, you know, all those satellites in orbit. Doing <laughs> We've been pretty, successful at, yeah, satellites, a lot of things, totally. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I would actually love to ask a founder that has a team of 50 or 100 people how they maintain that culture. Yeah. Um, I think for us, it's about being really picky on who we hire. So we spend a lot of time vetting candidates and making sure that they really want to join a startup. And I I tell people in interviews, this is not a nine to five. You are not going to optimize for salary. There are going to be days where you're tired and exhausted and frustrated. Are you sure you want to join? (laughs) I try to kind of like turn them off. Um, And we find that people that uh, really want to work on a mission focused company um, get really excited about Swarm. And those that really want to be part of kind of a nimble, agile team where they can contribute and lead and grow really quickly. So, you know, a year at Swarm is like five years at Google in terms of like career growth and opportunities. Um, so if you find those people... How many, how many years is, is that at, uh, I don't know, I was thinking of a traditional company, but I, I, don't, want to disparage, I don't want to disparage any <laughs> You can just scale it accordingly, yeah. however, you, however you think about that. Um, 
So yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's being, it's, it's selecting those people that are kind of mission aligned. And then I think it's also, um, we, we don't have like the, the combat, but we have like the team view. We're a team. We're like a soccer team. So it's like, okay, you got the ball. How can I help assist? I see you're struggling. Take a seat. You can rest, you know, I'll step in. Um, and it's that element of like, yeah, don't break team. Like yeah, yeah. They always say that in my Peloton uh, workout classes, don't break team. <laughs> the, the instructor's still going, you got to still go. Um, and and I think that's almost better than like family because I think family is like your love no matter what. And team is like, we all got to push to make this happen. So you're a startup CEO that's using the Peloton playbook. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hey, uh, we this is this episode. I think we've had the shyest audience ever, but there is one brave person, Henry. He has a couple of questions. Uh, one question is, you know, the number one driver for satellite IoT connectivity options is. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Cost is the number one driver for satellite IoT con connectivity options. What are the other factors that affect customers' decisions? And he has a follow-on question to that too. Okay. Yeah, I see that the second one as well. So I'll address this. So you're right. Um, often people look at cost first. Um, another key thing is coverage. So um, when Swarm is fully deployed, we're going to cover the entire Earth all of the time. So we call that global continuous coverage. So your sensor or person trying to use it can kind of jump on at any time and transmit. And there's a satellite overhead. Um, many of the other networks um, have big gaps. So you might have to wait an hour or two to move data. And we find that customers don't like to do that because they don't want to have to like have a fancy schedule. They just want to be able to shoot messages when they want. And you can imagine when people are using the network, they also, we have like no delay tolerance because we're used to Wi-Fi and cell and having like perfect connectivity. Um, so that's a key thing. Um, another key thing is ability to easily buy um, solutions. So right now, if you try to buy a satellite solution like Iridium, um, it's really painful. You have to buy through an Iridium reseller. Um, and we're trying to go more for the kind of Amazon direct one-click buy model to make it really easy for people to buy solutions. And we're really transparent. We put all of our technical documentation online um, to make it really easy. So like a hobbyist or an educational person can just click buy um, and then go on our website and see all the technical stuff and, and do it themselves. And we've actually had many customers that like, or like, we don't need your help. We just looked at the documentation. We got it all figured out. So that reduces some of the friction and, and helps with the sales cycles from yeah. our perspective as well. So I think, um, you, I think you already answered uh, Henry's second question. Um, basically, yeah, what, are, what are the challenges, typical time cycle? I think, I think you've hit on most of those, right? Yeah. So um, right now we have our tile, which is this thing, which is a satellite modem. And that gets embedded within a third-party product like um, Evan from, from Sweet Sense's um, water monitors or an agriculture sensor or an asset track it, tracker. Um, so that does require engineering work to embed. Um, we are coming out with different products that are more like plug and play, easy to use to try to make that even easier for customers. All right. Here's, a, here's one more. How can viewers tangibly support you and Swarm's growing mission from Nick? Oh, well, that's, a, that's a generous offer. I would say... <laughs> Uh, make sure you sign up for our newsletter on our website, swarm.space, and then follow us on social media and, you know, just like promote us when you see stuff. If you see us posting about products or um, hiring opportunities, tell your friends. Um, or if you can introduce us to anyone that might need Swarm services, please do that. So just join our community. And speaking of 
employment opportunities. <laughs> Owens wants to know what you're looking for. What sort of background does your company need? Um, well, a variety of different things. Um, nothing super specific. We have even entry level jobs where um, all you would need is have to have finished your undergrad and be um, pretty analytical and want to be customer facing. So really depends. And then if you want to be like an RF electrical engineer, you probably need some sort of <laughs> experience and degrees in, in that sort of field. Um, but nothing, nothing super specific. We're pretty open because we have such a wide range of roles that we're trying to fill right do you, now. Do you have any needs for a washed up astronaut and mediocre podcast host? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. Can you install ground stations? <laughs> no, I can't, I can't do any of that. I'm not inclined in any way. Um, Merrill is asking, in what vertical markets have you seen the most traction so far? Definitely. So a lot of traction in agriculture. So this would be connecting um, like moisture sensors, um, other sensors that you might see on the farm. Um, a lot of uh, logistics. So trucking. Um, maritime applications, so fishing boats, tuna fishing buoys, um, environmental monitoring. So I mentioned before, um, things like fire monitoring um, and weather stations, um, energy, so solar, um, oil and gas and wind monitoring, a lot of electricity monitoring, so monitoring electricity meters or um, electricity lines, um, and then a lot in the U.S. government as well. Cool. So I want to I want to fast forward. Uh, I want, to, I want to reach out into the future here. Sure. Where, where do you see this going? You know, we, 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 you said Internet of Things is a buzzword, and it is, but it is something huge that's coming, and, and all of this, con you know, connectivity is increasing exponentially. Um, I guess <laughs> the, the number of – what's a disconnect, though, is the number of people, the actual physical number of people who are not connected to the Internet is actually going up. Um, However, the percentage, I, I think, is going down, if I'm not mistaken. But in any case, uh, kind of our ability to connect people is is improving rapidly on an exponential curve. And, and you know, um, projects like yours are, are helping to do that. So let's let's look in the future. And, you know, I, I caution I always caution myself when I look into the future because because I tend to look at things, extrapolate things out linearly. Right. So I look back five years, I say, okay, if we have the same amount of progress over the last five years, for the next five years, we'll be here. That's always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because we're not on a linear curve, we're on an exponential curve. Right. So where do you think we'll be in five or 10 years from now? And, and, and what, is your, what is your goal in this whole thing? What do you, what do you, what do you hope to, to give to the world through, this, through Swarm and, and what's, what you guys are doing? Yeah, totally. So I hope in, in five to 10 years that we totally take for granted that we have connectivity on every point of the planet at all times. So just like we take for granted having cell connection, that wasn't always the case. I seem to remember my parents driving to my grandparents without Google Maps or GPS. They like had it in their minds. They, they knew where to drive, <laughs> which is not a skill I have now. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to you know totally take that for granted. Um, and I think that we're going to be able to move data um, and large amounts of data. So images and videos and podcasts, um, you know, at any point on earth at all times. I think that'll be totally taken for granted. Um, and I think that that is a few things that's, you know, continuing to see these space-based solutions um, increase their capacity. So the amount of data they can move. Um, and 
And I also think that, you know, I'm not even sure we're going to have cell phones in five to 10 years. For all I know, we could have some sort of chip implanted in our ear or brain, or I, I don't know, whatever is ethically appropriate. So I think we also need to remember that the, the way we, you know, look at a screen and we have different apps and we connect to, you know, one of a bunch of different solutions, cell or Wi-Fi, that may not exist. It may become all kind of seamless to us. And I'm hopeful that we can also move data more effectively. So um, right now we're talking at like less than a kilobit per second. It's pretty shitty uh, kind of comms. Maybe there's a way where I can have an idea in my brain and somehow that can be translated to your brain and we can move um, information a lot quicker just over different channels. So I think that's maybe a little bit um, existential of what that will look like, but I think that it's going to we probably can't even guess is what I'm kind of trying to get at here. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we could talk about the implications because basically what you're talking about is moving information faster and, yep. and, and more widespread, uh, yep. actually completely covering the entire planet. Why? why? Why is that important? Yeah, I think it's important for some of the first reasons that we were mentioning. So, you know, being able to connect every person on the planet is important to know where they are, to know that they're healthy and safe, and then to help them, get information so they can learn, so they can start companies, so they can get weather information. Um, I think it, um, you know, just like, you know, an American in New York City has the world at their fingertips when they are in cell connectivity. Basically, they have Google, they have literally every web page so they could search at any given time. Everyone in the world will have that same kind of equal access. Um, and I think that that unlocks a lot of opportunities. I think you hinted at, hey, there's 3 billion people that aren't even online. What if we also had all of their creative ideas to help solve for climate change and problems in their communities and problems with healthcare? Um, and we kind of gain the 30% of the population um, into, into these domains where we can be uh, solving for problems. And then I think also just making sure that all of the assets in the world are moving as effectively as possible. So whether that's cars, trains, trucks, planes, um, the ISS, um, and we have all of the information kind of connected. And obviously there's incredible data processing, ML, AI that's evolving. Um, and with that layered on top, we can make better decisions. Where should I route that traffic? Uh, where should I put the ISS? Uh, what should I do with this uh, this farm? Should I water or not? Is this pump functioning? Should I do it or not? And make kind of real-time decisions and and quicker feedback loops to just kind of run a more efficient world. Yeah, and I, th I think one, I agree with everything you said. I think there is a danger in this though, is that if you have this, you know, exponentially accelerating ability to, to provide information anywhere in the world, uh, is that information open and transparent and is it equally accessible to everybody or is it being hoarded by di different groups because you know information is power right mm -hmm. and and with every technology every invention it could be used for good or it could be used for evil <laughs> and so yeah. you know as this exponential curve continues to, to take off i think it's important for everybody in the industry uh to put in things, uh, you know, take the necessary precautions, whatever that is. And maybe you could speak to that a little bit so that we don't have, you know, we have the haves and the haves nots, and that gap is increasing, you know, exponentially right now in a, in a monetary thing. Also information, it's the same thing. 
Um, there's there's the haves and have nots with information, and that's and and the more information you have, the more you the, the the more capability you have to continue to grow, right? The more the your acceleration is accelerated <laughs> by the by how much information you have, and so, so you rapidly are seeing people get further and further left behind by this by the information gap that that this could create. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think you know for Swarm, the fact that we have a truly global network means we can move data from any point on Earth to any other point on Earth um, across country boundaries and IP connections and things like that. So. That's potentially very powerful, um, potentially also risky and, and probably some negative outcomes that are difficult to even forecast or, or know about or stop today. Um, one thing we care a lot about is security of personal information. So we, we layer on encryption so that everybody's data that is moved is encrypted. Um, and, you know, there, there are some crazy kind of cr- cross-country boundary requirements about downlinking within country and things like that that we remain aware of. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of these challenges are to come. Um, the good news is that our architecture is very flexible, so we can control different things. We can turn devices on and off um, if, if something potentially negative or evil is happening out there. Um, but I don't have all of the solutions. And I think when you see companies like Facebook and Twitter and um, you know, dealing with some of these information challenges, it really makes you think, okay, how can my platform be used negatively and how do I prevent that early days? And I think that there's some really challenging kind of ethical questions that need to be asked and, and thought about. Um, at this point, we're trying to just move uh, data from anyone can use it anywhere in the world and stay very open and transparent and not put any limits on it. Um, subject to, of course, regulatory approvals within those countries. Um, yeah, so probably have more questions than answers right now, Ron, but yeah. maybe we'll work through those in the next few years. Well, one of the one of the limits, you know, one of the barriers to be able to participate in, in this exploding information uh, glut, if you will, is, is cost, right? And so that, I mean, you're working to bring that down and to make it you know, democratize information yep. by making it affordable. And so that's, yep. and, you know, you said that we can't even imagine what things are going to be like. It's so important that we figure this out because the answer is not to stop sh- spreading information, not, not making information more available. That, that is not the answer right. because one thing that, you know, I'll just throw out one example, right. And that's weather forecasting. So right now when there's a hurricane, we get this big giant, you know, pie-shaped graph that you see on the news, right? And the hurricane is going to get any, you know, hit the coast anywhere in this in this pie-shaped yeah. thing, right? With enough data, we'll turn that pie into a line. We'll know exactly where it's going to hit. Yeah. You know, right now tornado warnings are given by, in minutes. Like the sirens go off and you got, <laughs> you know, 3 minutes to get into your shelter. Right. You know, we can change we can go that go from minutes to hours. Right. And so whole towns can prepare, you know, think of all the lives that could and, and damage that we could save by by being able to be more prepared for natural disasters if we can predict it. And that's all about measuring data tra- and sharing that, that the measurements of that data and using the modeling. Um, and so all of that stuff is 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 continuing to, to take off exponentially uh, and technology like you guys are bringing online is going to be critical in being able to apply, you know, have those applications uh, save lives. And so um, the answer is we got to figure this out because we can't just put our head in the sand and not, and not do it. Right. So, but there are real 
risks um, to this. And, uh, you know, I don't profess to know the answer either, but uh, I know that it's really, really important that we keep things as open and transparent as possible and uh, access uh, as open as possible to folks by removing every barrier we can to, to be able to participate in the growing information uh, that, that's, that's being uh, projected out. Um, so here's a question I'll pop up there. Uh, yeah, so how is Loon different? Great question. So I actually was at X for one year and worked alongside a lot of Loon folks. Um, and that was an amazing project. Unfortunately, it was recently terminated by Google. Um, so Loon was flying high altitude balloons um, so was, they weren't in space, they were kind of just in the upper atmosphere, kind of above, above where um, aircraft do kind of international flights. And um, they had a really impressive payload that did LTE direct to cell phones. Um, and then it did an optical, um, free space optical comm backhaul to other balloons. And it was essentially this network of balloons that were connected via optical um, amongst themselves and then downlinked to direct to cell phones, which was pretty impressive. I'm considering the distances that they were they were at. Um, it wasn't as close as a local cell phone tower. And they were essentially creating a service that was very similar to having a local cell phone tower in your community. And the advantage of that is that they were able to connect communities where there was no cell phone infrastructure. And that happens, um, they were in Peru and parts of Africa, I think they were entering as well. That happens when it doesn't make sense economically to put up another cell phone tower because the community is so disconnected from where most of the population is. And cell phone towers typically require fiber. So you're digging under the earth to like put down this fiber so you can pop up a cell phone tower um, in, a, in a farther out location. So it, the concept was amazing in the sense that it could connect remote communities and it could do direct to cell phone. So you didn't need to buy another piece of hardware. You just had to have a cell phone, be able to connect. Um, the difference there is that they were connecting people, relatively high speeds, LTE speeds, um, and very um, focused regions where they had deployed balloons. So only over a few um, countries is my understanding for pilots and some commercial activities. Swarm, on the other hand, is truly global. So our satellites see the entire globe. Even now we have full global coverage um, and we'll have global continuous once we deploy our whole network by the end of this year. Um, but we're much lower speeds and we're focusing more on connecting devices to begin with versus people. So it was actually very synergistic. You can imagine high density uh, balloons over communities and, and small cities and then swarm everywhere to kind of fill in the background um, for lower speed um, asset connectivity. So I want to ask your, your opinion on commerce in the stratosphere right now, because that's another area that's that's really boosting. And and. Basically, you know, if you look at the miniaturization of electronics and Moore's law and everything else, you know, we went from satellites that were basically school bus size to the satellite you just held up in, up in your hand and even smaller. Right. Yeah. And and so and these are really, really capable satellites um, that are using industry best practices and, and everything else. But with stratospheric balloons and I ran a stratospheric balloon company for, for a number of years. So I, I know a little bit about this you know, we're back to where we can take up small, a whole bunch of small payloads or a big pay. I mean, the, you know, we, we took up payloads that were, you know, many thousands of pounds, you know, tens of thousands of pounds in some cases oh. uh, mm -hmm. to the stratosphere. And so when you have that capability and you factor in the miniaturization and everything else that's going on, 
you know, and, and when you were talking about Loon, yeah, they were in these regions, but it was really a test program, right? And so the the idea is that you could have global coverage or worldwide coverage with stratospheric balloons too. Um, whole different set of problems, whole different set of capabilities, but I just wanna um, get your take on where you think that industry is going um, or that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, so specifically like balloons in the stratosphere or? Yeah, because because that technology, I mean, it, that technology has been around for over a hundred years. Yeah, but it, totally. But but it is being perfected now, and uh, the communications, the communications advances, and the electronics advances are making that um, feasible when it wasn't before. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, Loon what in Loon's initial goal was to actually have stratospheric balloons like cover the entire globe, or at least at low latitudes, to provide connectivity from like maybe plus and minus 20 degrees latitude or something like that. So being able to connect some of the poorest regions of the world where there's not always great cell um, and provide a kind of a constant ring. Um, now, my understanding is that the cost of the balloons, it was still very expensive. And that's mm -hmm. why it didn't really make sense economically um, to put up a whole ring of them. Um, and part of the challenge there is it comes down to just kind of physics. So Right now, the communications payload required to fly um, is pretty heavy. I don't know the exact figure, but it's probably like 10 or 100 kilograms kind of thing. Um, and that's required in order to offer this good uh, LTE link, so good customer experience, and then also to do the backhaul through the free space optical comm uh, link, which is also a very expensive, must point very precisely um, kind of sophisticated optics. Um, so I think maybe the miniaturization of electronics just isn't there, isn't quite there. Maybe it will be in five or 10 years where you can launch a payload that's light enough and therefore the balloon is low cost enough that you can offer um, that coverage. Yeah. Another challenge is that um, satellites in low Earth orbit have very deterministic orbits. So that means that we know exactly where they're going to be at every single moment. Um, and they fly around without any sort of disturbance due to weather or other types of um, impacts because they're in space above weather, essentially. Things in the stratosphere have crazy, they have crazy jets. They're, you know, very subject to weather changes. Those are very unpredictable. So it makes it really difficult to steer the balloons. And because you can't deterministically decide, you know, know and decide, so detect and control where you're going to put it, um, it often requires extra balloons for redundancy. Yeah. So I think if the steering issue, so if we had better weather data back to your earlier point, and if the miniaturization of electronics and specifically these communication systems gets below some sort of mass threshold, then maybe the business case makes sense where you could connect the world with balloons. There are many other interesting applications of balloons doing imaging, doing weather monitoring, radar, um, and maybe there's an opportunity. Fire detection. Fire, Fire detection. detection, yeah. Maybe there's an opportunity there yeah. um, commercially that makes sense. And one of the technologies that's really coming on board and is showing a lot of progress is altitude control of these high altitude balloons. And because yep. for good parts of the year, especially down at the lower latitudes, the winds are countervailing. And so you can hover right over a specific yep. point on the ground. You can navigate from point A to point B simply yep. by control by controlling your altitude. Yeah. Well, well, Sarah, we're, we're running up on the hour here. Um, so I, I just wanted to close with what are you, what are your goals for, both personally and for for your company, uh, for the next uh, ten years from now, where do where do you want to see yourself, and where do you want to see Swarm ten years from now, and 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 focused on, um, 
what impact that's what, what impact you imagine that making to, to the world? Yeah, totally. Um, 10 years is a really long time. Um, that's really challenging. All right. I, what do you want to do? Five years? Then? <laughs> well, five, let's say five to 10 years is, a, okay, all is right. an okay range. So, I mean, I hope that Swarm has solved for connectivity and that we're taking uh, connectivity on every point on earth at all times for granted um, at speeds that allow us to do useful things. Um, and I'm not saying we're going to go compete with some of the mega constellations, but I think that we have a place um, and value to bring in connecting people and devices. Um, and I think we can do it relatively quickly, like in the next year or two. So that's very exciting to me. And I hope that the downstream effects are, you know, cleaner drinking water, having better idea of fires, having better idea of some of the other environmental um, kind of weather detection things we talked about, that we don't lose assets. So Planes should not go down and no one knows where they are. Kids should not go lost. Kids or dogs should not go lost. Scooters should not go lost. Um, there's a lot of things we kind of lose or we, we about, don't have reading visible. glasses. Can those <laughs> Maybe we can work on that. <laughs> I think there's a Bluetooth solution for that. Um, but there's just, there's so many profound um, impacts kind of environmentally and especially with climate change, which is something that I'm becoming increasingly passionate about and figuring out how swarm can contribute to those issues. Um, and then also just safety and security for, for people. Um, so just more efficient systems, safety, security, all of those things. Um, and I, I hope that swarm continues to innovate and kind of offer these, these best solutions in terms of how to solve for these problems with our, our satellite technologies and grounds technologies as well. Um, me personally, um, I'm not exactly sure what will happen with swarm, but I, um, I would like to shift the focus of my later years into climate change activities. I think that that is something that, um, you, you know, I have a unique skill set in aerospace and running companies and technology. Um, I have unique connections in the world and I want to leverage those to solve for climate change. I think it's absolutely insane that we're not spending most of our time working on that right now. It's just completely unfair to the next uh, generations. So um, that's something that I, um, I really want to be able to focus on um, and hopefully swarm gives me kind of a little bit of that leverage to do that later on. Yeah. And let's, let's, let's keep in touch and, and talk about that. Cause there's some things I think we could potentially collaborate on in, in, in that area, but okay. sir, I, I want to thank you so much for, for jumping on the, on the show. Thank you. But I think more importantly, thank you for all that you're doing, uh, all that you're doing to move us forward, all that you're doing with swarm. It's really, really impressive. Uh, how can people find out more about swarm? Um, you can just check out our website. It's really simple. So swarm.space and you can sign up for our newsletter, sign up to chat with us. Um, and yeah, looking forward to hearing from all of you. And thank you so much for this opportunity, Ron. This was super fun. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And <laughs> thanks to everybody who tuned in. Thanks for the great questions and comments. Uh, and we'll see, we'll see you next time. Sarah, stay, stay, uh, stay with us for a little bit. I just want to uh, close and then, and then I'll, I'll be back with you in a second. Okay. Thanks everybody. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space.